You're listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR 855 AM. Thanks for tuning in. 3CR is broadcasting from the lands of the Kulin Nations, true owners, custodians, and caretakers of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to elders, past, present, and emerging, and recognize that sovereignty has not been ceded and a treaty never signed. CCR Breakfast. Oh, yes. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8:30 a.m. Good morning, Alice. Good morning. Judith's back. It's good to be back. Yeah, good. I missed you last week. Uh, we had uh, house guests, as you know. They were it was wonderful, of course. But yeah, uh, yeah pretty pretty full on. So I wasn't able to to get in. But yeah. you did a great job holding the fort, oh, Alice nice. and Patty. Patrick also was on. Yeah. so that was great. And yeah, yeah, we had some. Yeah, we had two great guests last week, and we had a couple of other stories as well. Yeah. So we had a good time. We did. But I could we hear. missed you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And uh, we need to thank uh, Beyond Zero Emissions for the show that was just on and, and the great work that they do. And um, I'm just wondering, Alice, how was your weekend? It wasn't too bad. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think what I got up to. Oh, just before that. Oh, God. We should say it's the 21st of October in case someone's <laughs> woken up wondering. It is early. Yeah. Yes. Just so you early. know, it's definitely the 21st yes. of October today. And yeah, it is it a Monday. Is. And it's not too bad out there. It seems to be warming up a little bit, I think, weather-wise. Yeah. yeah. It's warming yeah. up a little bit, definitely. Yeah. Which is nice. It is. But yeah. Yeah. How was your weekend? Well, I'm feeling incredibly cold. Yes. Because <laughs> yes. I've been to a few plays. I have as well. Yeah, so there you go. And um yeah, and and just um a bit more gardening and um Yes, catch Which ones have you been to then? What how have you cultured yourself this weekend? Well I went to see End of Eddie. And how was that? I really loved it. And that's part of the arts festival, right? It is, it is. And I went partly because I have a friend from Sydney who I mentioned when we did our interview um, with Jonathan, who's the artistic director, uh, the person who's 84 and who comes regularly to the Melbourne Arts Festival because she thinks it's the best one. Where is she from? Where does she come from? She's from Sydney. She comes from Sydney. Sydney. I mean, she goes to Sydney stuff as well, but she particularly loves the Melbourne one. So I met her for for dinner at the Malt House and we went to see End of Eddie. So, yeah, we're really interesting play. Mm-hmm. And um, what I've been really struck by with the things I'm seeing is kind of the way technology has been used on the stage. And uh, it was, yeah, so varied. I mean, so it was about a young man growing up in a small village in France, actually, mm-hmm. although I think the group was a British group. And, you know, and just what you go and go go through in that kind of situation. Mm. So, uh, anyway, yeah, I, I won't say any more about yeah. it, but... Uh, yeah, I found it. Um, yeah, found yeah. It interesting. Mm. I watched the Nico project. Yeah, I was wondering on about Friday. that. What did you think? It was um, it was a really good production. I'm, I still don't think I 
I know enough about it. Like about felt, Nico Yeah, yourself. about yeah. Nico. Like, I don't think you would mm. know anything more than We'll have to either. play a little bit of Lou Reed and Transformer, I think. Yeah. You know, if I'd known, I would have brought it, <laughs> I would have brought it in. Yeah, I mean, interesting I woman. To, yeah, mm. very interesting. But it, it was actually more of a production on mental health than on anything else. Like, okay. It mm-hmm. wasn't... Even though it was her story, I'm sure, you, you, you wouldn't have known that it was really a production about mental health. Um, and it was done in a really clever way with an orchestra. Wow. Um, yeah. It was, in, and it was one of those ones you need to debrief after. I do that with everything, I feel. I think that's just my gut, my, my world. I'm like, right, let's debrief. Yeah. We need a pint. I mean, what, we need to talk the, about this. <laughs> I mean, one of the things I love about the arts festival and, and other festivals as well is just it expands your head, you know, your mind and how you think about things and new ideas. Mm. And uh, I find it, I find it really stimulating. Mm-hmm. Something I did do yesterday was we had um, a Tai Chi flash mob at the museum. Oh, wow. Oh, how so, do you do a Tai Chi flash mob? Well, one person just starts doing the 108 moves of the set. Oh, wow. <laughs> young, young style. Although we didn't do the full 108, as it turned out. We had sort of a slightly modified. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> so what did you so what no, did so you do? No, so the one person starts. Yeah. And then, you know, it lets a flash mob. So then a few other people kind of join in. So kind of the idea is to look like, yeah, this is just happening. Yeah. <laughs> so I think there are about 30 of us from around Melbourne, from Middle wow. Park to Brunswick. Yeah, joining and did you in. get yourself in between like a relatively big crowd or something? Uh, no, 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 but no, there were just, no, there were, I mean, there were definitely people around mm. in front of the museum. Uh, I wouldn't describe it as a crowd, mm. but people did stop. Some people videoed what we were oh, doing. And, but people smile, like I think, I think people like seeing Tai Chi. You know, there's something kind of peaceful about yeah, and, anyway. and there's something about a flash mob Tai Chi that yes. <laughs> sounds... Yes. And it was kind of funny because um, uh, towards the end of it, those of us at the back didn't realise they were going to modify it, so we kept... Oh. We did snake creeps down <laughs> and then went on to <laughs> step back repulse monkey, but everyone else <laughs> did sweep lotus. <laughs> now, <laughs> this is going to make a lot of sense, I know. So anyway, then we all... Oh, oh! <laughs> so we just kind of... It was just close to the end. But then we all had to do it again, which was less of a flash mob, just because... Just know, for fun. Just for fun, because, you know, it didn't last long yeah, enough. Yeah, why not? I know. Did, yeah. you have to tell, did you have to tell the museum that you were doing it before? I don't even know, actually, because I didn't organise it. Yeah. I, I just went along. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's really fun. It is, yeah. And we, I mean, we can t- talk a little bit about what we've got coming up in the show but we've both seen this production now over the last week, which we're going to speak to Julian Merrick about later. Yes. And that's control. Yes. Another way that we've been culturing ourselves. Indeed. This, Indeed. This last like, week. Yeah, we're just amazing, really. Yeah, amazing. honestly. I have I've apologised to people listening because we're, we're going on a <laughs> we bit. We are great. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah, so, so yes, so maybe that's a, that's a good point to start with what we have coming up. Yeah, yeah so, so we have Julian Merrick at 8.15 who's going to come in and talk to us about um, his latest production that he's been directing called Control at the Red Stitch Theatre. Um, and you might have known Julian from Angela's Kitchen, Who's Afraid of the Working Class, The Realistic Joneses and Lamb. 
He's got well, a big, yeah, he's got yeah, a CV. Yeah. Well, he's a, he's a, a direct, he's, a, sorry, a, a professor at Flinders University. I don't know if he's still there, but he certainly has been in mm. theatre. So, yeah, lots of experience. It'll be wonderful to have him in the be studio. Really, really yeah, cool. And, and it was, that. and um, we, I mean, me and Judith have both already talked about this, really, before we came in here, but it's a very interesting production about life on Mars and the human relationship with technology. So mm. I'm yeah, really excited yeah. to speak to I love I must it. say it's my first time at Red Stitch Theatre and I love the feeling there. People were really the audience felt like really excited about really interested in theatre yeah. and the night I went there was a Q and A at the end and oh, yeah, fabulous. so that was great. And with particularly with the writer, mm-hmm. the playwright. Oh. Yeah. So that was great. Mm. And then I think just before that, at eight, we have uh, Nicola Parks, and she's coming to the studio to talk about development models, and uh, in particular, she's worked in Malawi in Africa, so I'll be interested in hearing, you know, what she's got to say. Mm-hmm. And um, then Peter Miller, just before eight, Peter Miller is um, a professor, and not only in, in addiction studies, but also violence prevention. And so he's going to tell us about the revolving door, which is politicians leaving politics and then very quickly signing up either as lobbyists or even employees of multinational companies that promote gambling, uh, alcohol, fast foods. So, you know, and how that's not really good for our health. And, you know, we've already heard a bit about that from uh, Rex Patrick with Mm. Christopher Pine leaving the defense portfolio and then immediately signing up with a multinational corporation. So Mm -hmm. it seems to be a bit of a theme. So we'll hear from Peter about 7.45. We're going to catch up on Myanmar and what's been happening with Rohingya people with Susan Hutchinson. And and it looks like... um, my, Myanmar may be held accountable for human rights abuses, so we're going to and genocide. So we'll hear from her about that. That's at 7:30, and then, of course, you'd be aware that Scott Morrison has been praying hard. Our prime minister has been praying hard uh, for <laughs> for rain, and uh, <laughs> Philip Armand has written about that. He's a, a professor in religious st- history of, of religion, and uh, so he's been uh, reflecting on what this all may mean for our government policy. But Alice, you know, the last time I was on air, which is now two weeks ago. Too long, too long. <laughs> it was. <laughs> I, I was that morning, um, as I was coming in, yeah. I heard that Ginger Baker died from the cream. He's the drummer from the cream. And it was too late to get organized to play something that oh. morning. But uh, I really still wanted to acknowledge his passing and also he as a drummer because uh, and there's a really great article about it in The Guardian by Adam Sweeting. And he says, before the arrival of Ginger Baker, the drummer used to be the quiet one. Sitting at the back of the stage. I mean, I don't even recognize this anymore. <laughs> Sitting at the back of the stage, job was just to keep time. Baker, who has died at the age of 80, pioneered the image of the rock drummer as a flamboyant virtuoso engaged in a dynamic interaction with the musicians around him. This is a beautiful description. So I guess one of the pieces that the cream, who he was part of, there were three, so Eric Clapton, of course, guitarist, and uh, Jack Bruce, who guitarist also, but singer and, and um, songwriter as well, along with Ginger Baker. And uh, one of their classics is Sunshine of Your Love. So I thought we'd just start with that this morning. Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. 
And that was Ginger Baker there on the drums and uh, from the cream. And great I, way to start. Great way to start. Did show. you did you recognize that song? I did, but I recognize the the riff more. I think it's the riff, yeah, more than mm. the the lyrics. So yeah. as soon as it came on, I was like, oh, yeah, I know. You know this one. I yeah, good, great talking. British, great British group. Yeah, yeah. Yes. true. I should Legends. know more. Oh no, no, never. No, you, never you know. I'm what? a Spice you Girls era person. Okay. <laughs> anyway, no, we all know what, you know, parts of lots of things, which is the wonderful thing about community radio. That's very true. Yeah. We do. So, the Sunshine of Your Love by The Cream. Now, in a speech in Albury last month, uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison told his audience that he was praying for rain in drought affected areas mm-hmm. and urged, and I quote, others who believe in the power of prayer to pray for that rain and to pray for our farmers. And uh, he's repeated that again just more recently. So I thought it's probably time to find out a bit more about praying for rain. (laughs) So I spoke with Philip Almond last week, last Thursday. He's a professor emeritus at the University of Queensland and a historian of religious thought. And he's written a paper entitled Thoughts and Prayers, Miracles, Christianity and Praying for Rain, in which he says... It appears prayer has become part of government public policy. So I began by asking him why. I'm very conscious of the fact, and have been for a while as we all are, that Prime Minister Scott Morrison is perhaps our first Pentecostal card-carrying Christian Prime Minister. And the second thing to say there is that as a consequence of his bringing uh, the media into his church during the election campaign, He has put his own religious faith on the public agenda. Generally, prime ministers keep their keep their religious beliefs a a little bit private, but Scott Morrison has made that a central part of his public persona, going right through now to talking as a prime minister about encouraging those who, like him, believe in the power of prayer to pray for rain to bring about an end to the drought. So he's put prayer very much on the public agenda as something that, as Australians, perhaps we ought to think about doing. To say it's public policy, you suggest, I know you're not saying it outright, that, that's a pretty big claim. Yeah, it's a big claim in the sense that I'm not sure that there is, you know, in the, in the Liberal Party's policy statements, uh, among other things to do for climate change at the top of this public prayer, So it's not government policy in that strict sense. But I think the important point is that Scott Morrison has put his religious belief and the encouragement for Australians to engage in religious activities like petitionary prayer right out there up front as a firm statement of how he thinks of himself as the Prime Minister of Australia. Interesting, you just mentioned the term petitionary prayer, and I did Mm. find it interesting reading your paper. Obviously, as a scholar of religion, you tease out what some of these things mean, like I'd never Mm. heard the term petitionary prayer. So what does that mean? Well, petitionary prayer is one of the, the standard forms of prayer within Christianity as a whole. Petitionary prayer essentially is asking God to do certain kinds of things. And it has the form, God, give me X, or God, if it be thy will, do this rather than something else. So praying for rain is a very uh, clear example of uh, the tradition of petitionary prayer within the Christian tradition generally. Are there other kinds of prayer? Oh, yes. I mean, just uh, praising and worshipping God more generally would be another kind of Christian prayer. This has the specific form of a request for God to do something. 
and more specifically to art, to interfere in the natural world. And I think you also distinguish about interfering, you know, in the physical world. Yes, in some senses. A prayer might say, you know, God help me through this difficult time. So it's asking for a kind of spiritual help. But God bring rain is clearly a request for God to intervene into the natural course of things and change the natural course of things. The other word there, the term that you discuss in your paper, is miracle. Mm. And uh, you mentioned that in the more conservative branches of Protestantism, miracles continue to be believed in, not uh, via saintly mediators, but through Mm -hmm. the direct intervention of God in response to the prayer and fasting of the faithful. Exactly. Within the Roman Catholic tradition, and this week is particularly important in that tradition because Cardinal John Henry Newman has just become a saint, Mm -hmm. first Englishman to become a saint in a long, long time. And in the Catholic tradition, that comes about as a result of the church being convinced that God has intervened as a consequence of people praying to Henry Newman. So we've got a very clear case there of, in the Catholic tradition still, of God doing miracles via saintly people. Within the Protestant tradition, it's, it's people gathering together and praying and fasting in the hope that God will take notice and do what they would hope. Now, you've mentioned in your paper a group that I hadn't heard of, the the Conservative Canberra Declaration Group, Mm. and it's declared this October a month of prayer and fasting for rain. That's right, and every day there's a a new prayer that goes up on the website and a new statement around that particular space. And in the case of the Canberra Declaration Group, which is essentially a group of conservative Protestants, No Catholics allowed in? Well, I don't know about allowed in, but I I don't believe that Roman Catholics are part of that, though they could be. It's hard to tell from the the website. Yes. Uh, What's clear is that they're coming out out of a very strongly Protestant tradition which says two things. One, it may well be the case that the drought is the consequence of the sinfulness of Australians. Oh. Therefore, we must repent from our sins and start doing the right thing rather than the wrong thing. And secondly, were we to do that, then God may well bring both spiritual rain upon our souls and physical rain upon the earth. The idea is to do that through prayer and fasting. And how influential is the Canberra Declaration Group? Yes, that's really difficult to say, Judith. I don't have any any strong sense of how influential they are. They're clearly a kind of lobby group. I suspect they're spinning out of the Australian Christian churches, which is the the part of the Pentecostal tradition, but it's very difficult to get any firm information on who they are. You pose the question in your paper, can God help? Hmm. And what's your response? (laughs) What's my answer to that? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We could say something like this. Philosophically, there's no reason why he couldn't. So God could intervene in the natural order of things to bring about rain, for the sake of argument. Uh, the next question is, if he could, would he do so? Yes. And then, well, well let's, let's say that, you know, in certain circumstances he decides to do us a favour and intervene and bring rain. Uh, should he do so? Well, that's another question. Yes. And my, my asking, should he do so, he might well think, well, it's not up to me to solve your drought problems or your climate change problems. Sort it out. You messed it up. That's a slightly frivolous thing to say. But you might say that within the Christian tradition at the moment, there's that sort of theology which says all we need to do is to repent and pray a lot 
and not eat breakfast and all will come good in the final analysis and God will bring rain. And there's another kind of Christian theology which says the only way in which we can sort out climate change is to act responsibly as Christians whom God has made responsible for creation and become activists about climate change. In other words, our God-given responsibility is to sort this out ourselves and not merely hope that God will do it for us. Yeah, and of course there are many Christians who have been actively involved in climate change and arguing for climate change. Absolutely true. Yes. I mean, climate change activism, you know, things like environmental theology and eco-theology yes. are very much on the, on the Christian let's say, more liberal Christian agenda at the moment. They're not particularly on the conservative Christian agenda, although that's not to say that there aren't conservative Christians who are out there being environmentally active. The broad issue in here is really the conflict between a kind of passive, a passivism about the drought, and so a passivism that goes to praying that rain will come, and a kind of endorsement of the fact that there is a connection between the drought and climate change and therefore the responsibility of upon politicians whether they're Christians or not to actually start to get serious about having a proper environmental policy and indeed that's what we need to do is what Scott Morrison needs to do mm. is get serious about having a, a proper environmental policy so that was Professor Philip Almond from the University of Queensland, and uh, he's been on the show before, and, and at which point I realized that he's also written a book, The Devil, A New Biography. I don't know if you remember. Oh, yes, I yes. do. Well, well, there's some good news. It's now available in paperback, so yes. <laughs> I might go looking for it. Yeah, but anyway, big thanks to, to Philip Almond. For, I, I know he's been uh, on quite a few shows over the weekend. People have been talk, very interested in his paper. So I was really happy he made time for us last Thursday afternoon. So big thank you to him. And now here's Leonard Cohen. And um, like Scott Morrison, uh, he's waiting for a miracle.
That was Leonard Cohen with um, Waiting for the Miracle to Come. And, um, yeah, and before that, of course, we were speaking with um, Philip Armin about uh, praying for rain. But now we have on the line Susan Hutchinson. She's a specialist in conflict and development and a Ph.D. scholar at the Australian National University. And her Ph.D. research is in international relations, focusing on women, peace and security. So last week, she published an article entitled, Myanmar Might Finally Be Held Accountable for Genocide, But the Court Case Must Recognize Sexual Violence. So uh, she's joining us now on the phone from Canberra, and uh, welcome to 3CR, Susan. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be with you. Yeah, it's great that you got up early for us. We always appreciate that. (laughs) <laughs> and um, as you point out in your paper, I mean, it's been over two years now since and you have this in quotation marks, clearance operations by Myanmar's security forces, the Chapmada, uh, folk, uh, forced more than 700,000 Rohingya across the border to Bangladesh. Uh, and we had heard a lot about that at the time, but not so much lately. Um, the UN Security Council, you point out, has remained uh, pretty silent on the plight of the Rohingya. And uh, so I'm wondering, you know, and you, you do also say that China and Russia have been working to keep it off the Council's agenda. So I'm wondering, why are China and Russia working to keep it off the Security Council's agenda? What, what's their interest here? 
Well, China and Russia usually do work to keep things off the agenda when um, they relate to things that might look like internal matters to a country because um, those are two countries that often have internal issues of their own yes. um, that are, are of concern to, um, you know, to the international community um, and, they, and, they, and they don't like people to look too closely at. Yes, um, well, I guess as far also, as Muslims, Sorry, Muslim communities go in particular both China and uh, Russia. Absolutely, absolutely. But also China has a very, very close relationship with Myanmar. Uh, um, There is virtually, it's almost not a border between Myanmar and and China. Um, The investment relationship is very close. Uh, um, Yes, the, the military relationship is very close. Uh, um, yeah, so the, the, yeah, the relationship between China and Myanmar is, 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 is incredibly close. Um, yes. So, but, but uh, interestingly, last month at the UN General Assembly, the Gambia, a small country on the west coast of Africa, announced plans to take the Myanmar government to the International Court of Justice for the genocide of Rohingya. Why has the Gambia acted, do you think? Why have they taken this step? This is, I mean, it's the most glorious announcement. Um, so, yeah, in many ways, it's it's quite um, it's quite surprising. But the the Gambia, it turns out, has been thinking about doing this for about six months. Um, but they're they're doing this, in fact, on behalf of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, which has um, several dozen members. Um, and so the the primary religion of the Gambia is Islam, uh, um, and uh, so obviously um, most Rohingya um, uh, identify as as Muslims. Um, but um, what is so taking a, a, a state to the International Court of Justice is a very significant diplomatic move, um, and one and. And and what's really lovely about it being done by the Gambia is that the Gambia has no um, kind of vested interest in Myanmar. So, you know, there's no regional interest, there's no trade interest, nothing at all like that. So so that's one of the really great benefits of it being done by the Gambia and not being done by someone, you know, more... um, more obvious from the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, like maybe Malaysia or Indonesia. Yes, or I mean, like it that. seems very um, I, I, courageous is probably not the right word, but really gutsy for a little country like that to. You yeah. Know. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was the vice president of the Gambia who made the announcement, um, who spoke at the General Assembly. Um, and I, I don't have the quote in front of me, so I'll try and paraphrase it. But at the beginning of her speech, she said that, so the Gambia has, has just, is coming back from quite a, um, a long period of political, um, of, of, of political turmoil. Um, and, you know, they're trying to work through, um, the consequences of that, of, of that political Political instability and um, um, yeah, and 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 she said the Gambia is, is a small country, um, but but they're really trying to prioritise human rights. Um, they're going through a kind of truth and reconciliation process internally, and they're prioritising human rights within their own country. Um, and 
um, within and then in, externally they're looking at human rights um, on the continent, so in Africa and um, um, across the globe. So and it's I think great. Mm. Yeah, and that this is something that really it, it, that really shows that they're that they're putting their actions behind that behind that priority. Yes, and of course, even though you know the Security Council has been silent and quiet, there have been a number of reports. You refer to two reports. Uh, one by Human Rights Council fact-finding mission last year, and then another released in August this year, looking at the human rights issues uh, in and for the Rohingya people. So, what did those what did those reports find? Yes. Yeah, so the first one was a huge, huge. So it's a, a the details report um, that took them many years to produce uh, um, on, uh, so it wasn't just on the Rohingya, um, it was about um, three kind of um, uh, three areas where the Tadmador had been um, uh, operating and uh, using, uh, had been breaching international human rights and international humanitarian law. Um, okay, just they, excuse me there, Susan. So it's still about Myanmar, but it's three different areas in Myanmar. That, that's correct. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, and uh, so, yes, so they um, and they detailed kind of the specifics. And in reality, they're talking about the same tactics that are being used across the country, uh, um, just with some sort of different types of um, justification um, and uh, with. The, and with the Rohingya, there's just a slightly different consequence because of, um, they have a slightly different citizenship, um, categorization, I which ha- means that there's a different, there's, there's a different effect as well. Uh, um, yeah, and it's just, I mean, they detailed it. It was really, it's really horrendous. So what, sorry, see, what's, what kinds of things did they detail? So they talked about um, they talked about forced labor. They talked about arson. They talked about um, sexual violence. They talked about um, forced displacement. Um, they talked about um, uh, um, they t- they talked about. Um, uh, um, uh, just, I do. Torture. I just noticed, uh, like the, just the volume of uh, pregnant women, for example, in the refugee camps. And uh, yeah, yeah. So early, very early on in the crisis, I did some research um, looking at the yes. Yeah, so it was uh, yes. Yeah, so very, very early on in the crisis, when we were seeing the mass displacement of the of the refugees there was an extraordinary high portion of the population who were pregnant women which to me alerted us to the fact that um that there was a probability that we were that we were seeing you know that there was evidence that sexual violence that rape was being used um as a tool of ethnic cleansing and once i did the analysis of that that became quite obvious so I published a report. Uh, I published a paper on on that, um, and and since then, um, just very recently, in fact, the fact finding mission um, has expanded on that on on those findings um, to see, um, yeah, with a, bu- a bunch of interviews to show that the sexual violence was also being used on on men um, and boys um, and trans people as well. 
Yes, so it's very concerning. And, it's uh, very, very concerning. And the UN Security Council has passed uh, resolutions on women and peace and security, and particularly calling for the protection of women and girls and men and boys from conflict-related sexual violence and uh, urging countries to put in impunity for these crimes. These are points that you make. But how important will this be in a potential genocide case against Myanmar and the International Court of Justice? Well, we think it's hugely important because from a policy perspective, the Women, Peace and Security agenda has existed for a very long time now. But, you know, it's so much more, there are so many more words than there are actions in in this space. Um, And although the law exists, particularly, you know, it exists um, in international criminal law, the question of accountability is still one that remains a significant problem. Um, And this um, International um, Court of Justice case is is unique. Um, And if we could ensure that the sexual violence components of this genocide are included in this case and that we could get the court to make a ruling on that, it would really strengthen um, the, the, um, the... the case for um, ensuring that countries prevent um, that countries act to prevent sexual violence and that they act on sexual violence in armed conflict, um, yeah, when when and when they see it occurring. And um, it's Alice here. Um, just a quick Hello. question. Hello. <laughs> um, <laughs> does the Gambia need support when taking the case to the ICJ? Well. So, ICJ cases are incredibly expensive and incredibly long, ordinarily. Um, and the Gambia um, is a developing country. Um, and so, at the moment, so the case is being taken on behalf of the Organisation of Islamic Cooperation. So, theoretically, um, the OIC is going to be providing some of that support. But so far, um, they haven't really come through with that. Um, and I think it's really important that it's not left just to the global Islamic community to um, support this kind of process of accountability. You know, it's not just a question of kind of um, the fact that Rohingyas are Muslims. You know, genocide is an international issue. Um, we really should be making sure that the rest of us kick in support for this question. Um, but also... Um, in my experience, the OIC is a deeply patriarchal organisation, um, and if we want to ensure that they have um, that the sexual and gender-based violence components of the case are covered, I also think that it's really important that support comes from countries with an experience, with sort of policy experience um, on the women, peace, and security agenda. That, that uh, sounds um, essential to me. And uh, Susan, I'm just going to reintroduce you for anyone who's just tuned in. Uh, we're speaking with Susan Hutchinson, who's a specialist in conflict and development and PhD scholar at the Australian National University. So what can the International Court of Justice do? What, like, what could be achieved in this case? 
Well, what's really amazing, and with all of the discussion that has sort of existed around possibilities for individual criminal accountability, what's really amazing about the International Criminal, or what the International Court of Justice, is that they, once they hear the case, once the case comes to them, which could be a matter of weeks or, or months, uh, um, is that they can um, make decisions very, very quickly. So they and those decisions could have an impact on the ground in Myanmar almost straight away. So, for example, they can make they can give they can order the government of Myanmar to to um, to, to make sure that their um, that their security forces, so the Tadbador, so the military and the police, stop all actions that would be supportive of genocide immediately. That's and, remarkable and, that, that they could absolutely. act so quickly. That Absolutely. And that is exactly the kind of thing that the Security Council has been unable to do. Uh, um, and that's a binding directive that the, that the International Court of Justice would be able to give the Myanmar government. Look, um, and, and that... Mm-hmm. Go on. And it's yeah, and it's it's absolutely remarkable. Uh, um, so, and that's the kind of thing that would be that has potential to be very valuable for Rohingya who who remain inside Myanmar uh, um, and are still suffering from the consequences of this ongoing genocide. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, just quickly, what uh, countries have any countries uh, supported the Gambia so far? So far, so um, although I don't have, I haven't seen, um, it was a, it was not an on-the-record statement, but when, um, at the, during the period of the General Assembly, the Minister of Justice of the Gambia um, did tell a few countries, there was a, an event where he said that Canada and the Netherlands were providing some financial assistance to Good. the case. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. So, and, and what we, what can our listeners do? You know, if they're uh, keen okay. to get some action happening on this. Absolutely. So, I would absolutely recommend that you write to your member of parliament and ask to get the Australian government to provide uh, um, to provide some support to this case. So, Australia could provide support to the Gambia in a few ways. We could join as co-applicants to this case. We could ask other governments to provide support to this case, um, and um, we could um, we could provide um, funding or other support to the Gambia. Or once the case comes to the court, we can provide a brief. Um, it's a, called a formal intervention that we can provide with a whole bunch of information about the sexual and gender-based violence components um, of the genocide. Yes. Um, which we can provide to the court. So, Susan, we're running out of time, unfortunately, but we will post your paper on our website so people who want to read more detail, and you've got lots of great links in that paper, so if people want more information about this issue, they'll be able to find it. So thank you so much for uh, coming on our show this morning. It's been great speaking with you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Susan. And that was Susan Hutchinson, who's a um, specialist in conflict, conflict and development, and she's at the Australian National University. And now we're going right into our next <laughs> Straight into it today. Straight into it today. So um, from Myanmar, we're right back here in Victoria. <laughs>
uh, at uh, Deakin University with uh, Peter Miller, who's a professor of violence prevention and addiction studies and um, director of the Deakin University Center for Drug, Alcohol and Addiction Research. But one of his areas of research is the behavior of vested interests. Well, we're talking about now the global alcohol industry, the gambling industry, fast foods, and how they influence policy and research. And in particular, uh, they have noticed that politicians become lobbyists, uh, and the, they've written a paper saying that when politicians become lobbyists, well, that can be very bad for Australia's health. <laughs> that paper opens with the following statement. The impacts of heavy drinking, gambling, and unhealthy food are among leading causes of preventable health harm in Australia, and I expect the UK too. Yeah, Alice. I should think so. Yes, and for the most part, we know what to do to reduce them. So when I spoke to Peter last Thursday, I asked him, so if we know how to reduce them, why is nothing happening? That was very much the question of our research project. We know, have known for a long time how to do it, um, how to reduce those harms, and it's really been that issue of what is standing in the way. And for the most part, it's the power of the vested interests and the fact that they they are operating at a very different level to most um, health activists and researchers. So they have long-term strategies of engagement, of influence over politicians, many of which we know about political donations, um, gifts and parties and things like that, but the the one that we focused on in this paper was the issue of the revolving door. Now, it can go both ways, of course. When you say it can yep. go both ways, what do you mean? So the revolving door can both be industry people then being employed into government or government people being employed by industry. Now, we tend to focus more on the second one, the government people then being employed by industry, but in fact it's equally difficult having industry people who are employed within government, particularly if it's a related. There's a wide range of strategies. As I mentioned, political donations, uh, funding of campaigns. We've seen that in the last Victorian election where the Hotels Association funded Labor to fight in three seats where Greens were a threat. We see that sort of targeted political donations, but we also see buying access to politicians at dinners and political fundraisers. So we see this across industries. Many of them learnt from the tobacco industry or we know that people within the club's world went to the National Rifle Association in America to learn how to paint and influence politicians and politics and democracy. Yes. Um, these are well-known strategies. Well, they're well-known within certain circles. I think many people don't really appreciate just how far they go. These industries use things like front bodies. Front bodies are, uh, we call them social aspect organisations, things like DrinkWise in Australia, Drink Aware in the UK, uh, Cheers in New Zealand. They're all exactly the same model because these companies are global companies. And they're funding um, these programs? They fund these programs and they fund them for spin, for public relations, so that we don't put in place effective measures. We waste decades on ineffective measures. And I think the best example right now is what's happened with pregnancy labels. So what's happened with pregnancy labels um, on bottles? So On alcohol, people, on alcohol. You on mean. alcohol. Yes. Warning people around the risks of drinking when pregnant 
We have known about those risks for a very, very long time and the industry has fought tooth and nail to control and to manage the information that's supplied on the bottle. And after a decade or more of letting the industry do it and then not doing it appropriately whatsoever and still having appalling rates of awareness, finally the government has acted and said, here are what we mandate as uh, warning labels. And the industry has come out and said that having a red and white uh, label that says it is safer not to drink at all is too confusing for the public. <laughs> um, I see. You know, they're, they're incredibly condescending. They also astroturf, so they create bodies like Keep Canberra Open, Keep Brisbane Open. They're just industry fronts that pay some staff to go out and protest on the street. The best one is in the tobacco space called the Australian Retailers Association. I could be wrong with the name, but we saw that around plain packaging where you had this organisation suddenly pop up that was saying all these poor retailers were going to suffer terribly because of plain packaging. And it turns out it was entirely funded by the tobacco industry. So you've got to <laughs> do your homework and find out what seems to be like a community, a naturally formed community group, but actually funded by some of these yeah. industries, I think, from what Absolutely. you're saying. Absolutely. And they have many, many different ways. But what our paper focused on was the revolving door. Industry targeting strategic individuals who have been employed by the community, who have developed knowledge and networks around their role serving the public and then sell out to the industry very quickly and what they bring with them is not only this incredible network and access to the people who are the lawmakers but also they bring this knowledge. What we're talking about here is the the key tactic that was employed certainly by tobacco which yes. was to have former politicians, former public yes. servants, to work with them. Yes, so it's, it's employing people either as lobbyists, uh, registered lobbyists, or employing them as employees. We have a, a lobbyist registers in Australia, but they're woefully inadequate for the task. Most states won't share them with you. So you're not allowed to know who's lobbying the government. That's a bit scary. Um, <laughs> yes, indeed. And then at the federal level, they keep no long-term records about it. So the records are quite only current. But you don't know who is lobbying which government politician for what reason. And those registers also fail to tell you a lot of the history of the companies or the individuals involved. So there's really no transparency. We have no idea who's meeting with our politicians and when. But what we do know is when we looked at them, you are able to see if this person was an ex-politician, not whether they're an ex-public servant, but you can tell if they're ex-politicians. And what we can tell you, obviously, is there's a lot of people on the register of that. But the other bit that they, that's not recorded in any official sense is all of the politicians who go and work for industries, so people sitting on the board of Crown Casino and a number of high-profile ex-politicians from both sides working in Crown Casino or working for large consulting companies. Or so then. what kind of percentage would we be looking at of, say, former MPs, senators, senior advisors, chief of staffs? What kind of percentage would you find among lobbyists? We have absolutely no idea. When we're talking about the lobbyist register, we found it was about a third, the registered ones that are working for lobbying companies. But that is the tip of the iceberg when you talk about the other group of people who work for private companies because only the very prominent ones and only really at the ministerial level does it ever get noted at all. They mm -hmm. are simply secret. You've referred to it a little bit earlier, but yeah. why is this a problem? 
both fundamentally undermines the public interest. So it means that these individuals take with them the network. So the, the network that you and I can't access of decision makers, of policy makers, they bring them straight to the company. Decision makers, whether they be public servants or politicians, they bring this wealth of knowledge and they know all of the problems and benefits pitfalls of legislation. They know all of that and it's meant to be in the public interest and all of a sudden it's flipped over and it's being used for the private interest, usually of very large corporations that are global and don't really have Australia's interest or the Australian public's interest at heart. No, I think they mostly have um, making money at heart. <laughs> so we've been speaking with Peter Miller, and he's a professor of violence prevention and addiction studies and director of Deakin University Centre for Drug, Alcohol and Addiction Research about how major multi- multinational companies employ former politicians to influence their parliamentary colleagues and staffers to support policies that favour business interests over public health. I mean, this is ongoing, as we know, from way back when people were fighting tobacco advertising. Uh, you know, they took from the de- from the time when it was learned or scientifically shown tobacco caused health pro- many health problems. 1980 took another 20 years before some of the things were put in place to to really make those changes. Anyway. I asked Peter if there was a mandated length of time between politicians leaving government and when they would be allowed to take up positions or become lobbyists for alcohol, fast food and gambling industries. Well, at the moment, the politicians have a voluntary guideline only for ministers. So, you know, ministers are probably the least susceptible in a lot of the real potential for corruption areas where if you've got a backbencher who's looking at being voted out, they're going to be unemployed soon. Voting for a bit of legislation that, let's say, stops alcohol price being increased could be very lucrative for them. Your question about what can be done and the issue of timing are are the two sides of the same coin. But just before we go to that, so what happens in other liberal democracies, how long does the person have to be out of parliament before they can take up such a position? As you can imagine, it varies a lot. The best thought through model is Canada, where it's five years. It says you can't hold a position in the private realm for five years that was related to your specific area of influence. And what is it in Australia again? Well, it could be 18 months. That's what the ministerial guidelines say. But as we've seen in three very recent examples, it's complete rubbish and it's not applied whatsoever. Yes. Uh, so, that, so that's rather embarrassing. I mean, 18 months to start with doesn't compare with five years in any way. And that no. even the 18 months isn't observed. Well, sometimes it's not even been 24 hours since these people have quit from one job to be appointed to a million-dollar job in the same area with some of the people they were just sitting down at the table with representing our country. And there's no penalties. There's absolutely no penalties. Whereas in Canada and even in the US, even Donald Trump put in place a five-year moratorium on being employed in an area where you have a conflict of interest. And there are real penalties, even potentially jail time, if you abuse it. Because it's ultimately a breach of the public trust. You're breaching your responsibilities for the community you serve. So what does need to happen? There's a number of things. Obviously, we need to put in place proper guidelines around having something like a five-year or a four-year in Australian 
logic would be sensible. So five years is one political term in Canada plus one year. So that there's very little chance of any sort of ongoing corruption. So a five-year moratorium on being employed in that area and having a watchdog, a corruption commission that monitors and enforces these laws and that we have strict penalties around it to say it's not okay for you to go and do this. It will wipe it out pretty quickly. It's a key part of what we've got to do to try to ensure that uh, our public interest is being served by these people. And what, what can people who are listening do? Is there something the community can do? Absolutely. Demand accountability from your politicians. Ask them who they're being funded by and to declare these things. Push harder for transparency and accountability. In Queensland, they've put in place real-time online disclosure of all gifts. Yes. Any amount. And people can go and demand that from their politicians. Yes. Because so many of the problems we're facing in society today come, they stem from this basic undermining of our democracy by corporate interests. You conclude your paper by saying that government's continued failure to adequately regulate the behaviour of former politicians, political staffers and public servants isn't just an issue for public health policy. It also represents a fundamental corruption of our democracy. And I think that's the point you've just made. Yes, I think so. (laughs) I think it's increasingly clear to many people that we need to see independent monitoring strong rules and a real wake-up call for our politicians to do their jobs seriously and independently. And that was Peter Miller from Deakin University, and uh, how true is that? Nicola Parks has just joined us in the studio, and we I can't tell you, Nicola, how grateful we are for people coming into the studio on Monday morning. We say it every week. Yeah, no, we, we do, do, but, but we truly really are. No, thank we you. It's great are. being here. Uh, she's an Australian Catholic University 2019 Alumni of the Year. Congratulations. <laughs> wow. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, congratulations, Nicola. And um, in part, I understand you're being honoured work that began in Malawi. Yes, yes, that's right. right. Yeah, Yeah. I just came back from Malawi in March this year. Wow. So can you just tell us a bit about Malawi? Yes, so Malawi is a landlocked country in southern Africa, and um, basically Malawi is known for uh, the lake, so Lake Malawi, which covers half of the country. Wow, huge. Yeah, Yeah, but um, yeah, it's such a beautiful place with beautiful people, but extremely, extremely poor, poor nation, so... Yeah, and so what took you there? Why, what were you doing there? Uh, um, so I specialize in settlement in Australia. So I um, I'm, uh, work as a social worker with young, uh, families that have arrived 
from refugee backgrounds. Um, so, yeah, what took me there was all the families that I was meeting in Australia saying that they'd come from all these different um, countries in Africa, and I was like, oh, that sounds so cool. I want to go and visit. So, um, yeah, went went backpacking around East, Eastern Africa and Southern Africa and then kind of networked my way into into the field over there. So, yeah, I was working in um, Malawi in a refugee camp there. Wow, well, that's amazing. And I think w- when you were there, you were really impressed by the work. I mean, I may not pronounce correctly, Vijana. Yeah. Vijana, sorry, Vijana Africa. Yeah, yeah, you, you actually pronounced it correctly. It's Vijana, and it is um, a word in Swahili, which is an ah. Eastern African language, and it means young people. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Okay. So what impressed you about their work? Yeah, so I was working with this. I, I guess what impressed me was it's a, a grassroots community-based organization that was formed within the refugee camp, so Zalika Refugee Camp. And um, it's it's youth-led and it's run by refugees for refugees. So I guess that was what mostly impressed me, that, you know, the, the, it was, it was uh, a gap that they had noticed that other services weren't filling and then they were able to step in and, and come up with interventions to assist their community. Right, okay. And then there's, is there a connection with um, Three, an organization called Three Towards Human Rights for Everybody, Everywhere for Everybody? Yeah, so, so um, what I noticed in the camp is there is a lot of grassroots organizations that don't receive funding. So what happens is um, people come together um, from the organization and they put in their own personal money, even it's very limited within the refugee camp. How generous. Yeah. So How what, generous of people. Exactly, mm. absolutely. Mm. So um, when I came back to Australia, I was like, I want to link these grassroots organizations with Melbourne-based organizations to help with long, sustainable partnerships where they can receive ongoing funding. Um, so when I came back, I basically approached a um, three, three for all foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I was like, there's all these great community-based organizations in Malawi. You should be partnering with them. Um, they really need assistance. They need funding. Um, so yeah, now I'm here with three for all and volunteering and helping, yeah. helping connect um, community-based organizations with them. So tell us about some of the things you saw when you were in Malawi besides the the youth project. Uh, In fact, I was wondering Mm. if there was any community radio in Malawi. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) There is a community radio in Malawi, and it is is listened to throughout the whole camp. So So is uh, it in the refugee camp? It's inside the refugee camp. Wow. Yeah, so it's it's actually funded by Plan International. Um, And, yeah, you have a a group of... um, a, a group of people that are employed actually to work within the community radio and yeah I was lucky enough to to attend meetings at the community oh. radio and be interviewed in the community radio and people were translating um, in different languages so people in the in the refugee camp could listen. So. And what kind of content were they presenting like what was, was there uh, I mean I think often community based radio in situations like a refugee camp mm-hmm. provide very practical information was that the case? Yeah so there's practical information there was music um, but the reason I was going in mostly was just to talk about, um, uh, you know, like capacity building sessions. So things are where um, people in the camp could come and learn for free. Um, so that's kind of the work that I was doing was was um, networking with community-based organisations and, and getting them to come into our service so that we can work together. 
And what wasn't there part of what you're doing responding to gender-based violence? Am I right about that? I didn't misread that. Yeah, no, no absolutely. Yeah. So um, Vagina Africa, they specialize in gender and sexual-based violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of their work, they do peer mentoring. So they, they train up young people to go and just dispatch this kind of information within the camp. And, um, you know, they have, like, local debates. Sometimes the debates are within the community radio. Um, and that will be about, like, you know, whose role is it to cook at home and, and whose role is it to go... Um, and fetch the water, you know, things like this. So it just creates conversation. Yeah, I mean, I've looked at stuff around climate change and fetching water and the, some of the health impacts that come out of some of the waterborne diseases, and usually it's women. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, that's the case, yeah. Yeah, wow. So I'm just thinking, so you, I think you're now running a program, another program around um, training people, is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So... Um, Basically, what happened was um, I, I linked Three for All with Vagina Africa, and then um, Three was like, yeah, we want to know more about what projects you want to do, what what issues do you see in the camp, what what needs do you think your community has? Um, and so Vagina um, proposed a project, and this project was around training or ca- making a capacity-building session for community leaders. So just to give a bit of context, um, within the camp there is uh, 40,000 refugees. Yes, wow. so there's, wow. there's a lot of refugees. Yeah. And um, and basically there's, there's one police station, and the police station is policed by Malawians. So basically what Vagina has, has seen is that locals actually don't go to the police when they have an issue. They go to community leaders. So they're called community zone leaders, and basically they have, like, in each zone, there is a community leader there that, that um, you know, the community can go to when, when they need assistance. So basically what, what they've noticed is that these community leaders have only received one training when they first became a community leader. And so they want to be able to provide a refresher and make sure that these community leaders have, um, you know, best practice when it comes to responding to gender-based violence. And are you going to be involved in that or um, going back to Malawi by any chance? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> any excuse see, to go back. Just, just for people <laughs> listening, there's a big smile. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, no, I love Malawi. Um, but, yeah, I guess a part of the project, you know, it, it's not just about linking two organisations together. There is a bit of due diligence. Oh, I can never say that word. <laughs> but, you know, there's a, there's a bit of monitoring and evaluating that goes, goes with it as well because, you know, we are presenting um, organisations with money and there needs to be some sort of accountability. But in, in terms of that, yeah, it, it would be about going back to Malawi and, and kind of following up with community leaders, how they found the capacity building trainings, if that was something that was useful, if it wasn't useful, and, and, you know, what else can we assist with? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I think in the press release that came out about your project was that one of the hardest things for development people to learn is to actually listen to the community. Oh, absolutely. And I guess that's why I really, I actually like sought down Three for All because their organisation does things extremely different. It is community-led and, and it is they just are there to be partners with the community-based organization. And I guess because the community does know the needs better than the and international... And were some things that you learned being there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, something specific that just, oh, my God, that, you know, I wouldn't have never thought of that, that you've learned from being in the community. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, An, an example of that would be... Um, you know, I used to have to drink um, bottled water, and so I, I used to always notice young young children collecting the the bottles of water, and I was like, "What are they doing that for?" And then it, it turned out 
um, that they were actually using it as coal so that they could cook their food. So, um, and that's because... Oh, sorry, I don't, know, I don't know what you quite mean there. So, so in, for the water bottles, the, um, what I'm saying is the um, conditions were so, so bad that they weren't able to buy coal and, and the rations that was given in the refugee camp, they, they weren't able to... They would use the coal quickly to cook yes. for their family. So they were using the water bottles to, as coal as to make a fire. To burn, yeah. So this is something that I absolutely mind blowing. It's got to be very dangerous. Yeah, fumes coming off them. Absolutely, but it's you know when you have nothing, you don't have electricity, you don't have running water, you have nothing else to use to to cook your food with. Yeah, Yeah. and I I think that's a really that's such a good example of what you wouldn't realise. Absolutely, had no idea. You only find that out if you've been to the camp and then you see it for yourself. Yeah, yeah. So I used to put the water bottles in my backpack and as I would walk through the camp, I'd have kids that just come up and grab it out and run. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, so it was just, yeah, things like that where I just had no idea. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we live very differently, a very Mm. affluent Mm. life here and uh, and how Mm. people manage in, in just really scares yeah. situations. So you do have a fundraiser coming up, I think. Yes, we right? do. Yes. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. Um, yep, so we are running a fundraiser for the Malawian Project to, to train the community um, zone leaders. And um, the fundraiser will be at ACU, so Australian Catholic University in Fitzroy. There's um, a little courtyard where the arts building is. And so we're going to have some free wine and cheese. And, and it's um, $30 a ticket, so the community is welcome. But we do need RSVPs because we need to know how much cheese to provide. How much cheese, <laughs> <laughs> how much cheese And I've got here that it's at um, Paddy's room. Yeah. Oh, Paddy's, no, Paddy's. Room 411. Yeah. Yep, that's it. So you will see a marquee. um, If you go straight to the arts building, you'll see a marquee, and then there will be some. We have a ukulele band playing, I think. Oh, Oh, my (laughs) villa. I remember running into a ukulele band on a train to the Blue Mountains. (laughs) And they were just stopping at different stations, you know, all the way up to the Blue Mountains. No, that's great. (laughs) It was a bit like a flash mob, really. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But but I guess if if you can't come to the fundraiser, feel free to check out. Three for All Foundation's um, uh, website, you can directly um, donate to that as a once-off donation and you can write in the description for the Malawian project. And you can RSVP people who are interested in going along to gen, j-j-e-n dot couch, c-o-u-c-h at acu.edu.au and that's 5pm this Wednesday. This Wednesday. Day after yeah. tomorrow. Mm. So thank you so much for coming in this morning. It's been thank lovely you. to meet you. Yeah, yeah and you hear too. more about Malawi. Yeah. Yeah, thank great. you so much for having me. It's great, yeah, great to chat you. with you guys.
Most LGBTIQ people experience positive, intimate, and family relationships. However, like cisgendered heterosexual people, some LGBTIQ people experience abuse and violence in their relationships. With Respect is a new family violence service for LGBTIQ plus Victorians, providing counseling and recovery programs for victims and survivors of family violence and help for people using violence who want to stop. With Respect is a partnership between Queer Space, Thorn Harbour Health, Switchboard Victoria and Transgender Victoria. For more information, visit withrespect.org.au or call 1-800-542-847. With Respect is not a crisis service. If you need immediate help, call triple zero. A 3CR supporter.
and a bit of desert reggae there to keep us going this morning. And that was um, uh, Jamoku Nura and by the Jintu Desert Band. Love that song. Yeah, it's
head held high with my message so proud. Walk in this world like a rose petal. Visions of righteous girls, free in heavy metal. Hold my hands as I follow through into hiding with the sand swallowed by the sewer lining. My mouth dry, but I'm hungry for that microphone. A lie, why? Got us jumping on these nights I flow. Ruby red lips, diamonds of the Nile. My subconscious through the eyes of a wild child. Transferred a book of rhymes from my deep brain. Pouring eyes with that time, made me rip the pain. Cinematic visions of this eight millimeter. Mimic shadows standing straight with my freedom. My head's so thick, I meditate in the moment. Then my mind's focused, medicating hypnosis. Walking alone, expecting which way to choose. Direction, direction, real direction, just to In this paranoid universe, that blows me breath up my revolutions on earth. Living on the high rise, flowing with maddies. Poetry's looking over time when you have these. Smoking mirrors for these seven deadly sins. Palms red deep with the future of a girl king. My throat's a nebula, sinking into mercury. Searching southern skies, sticking out a galaxy. Cutting up my purse while I'm working on the system. Bowen Berserk, got him twisted on my wisdom. Walking up these stones, pouring out a vixen. Mr. Whippy's famous, mountain in a Fitting on the lack of lines with a brick face Fitting energies with iron lack on my shoelace Hazy blood visions into street ethics Scribble words riddled into the cryptic message You're walking alone, expecting which way to And I think sometimes she calls herself Crystal Mercy now and part of Oetha. 
uh, also, and the song was Hershey Bars. And such a legend. She is such a legend. I love her work. I love what she does, and her voice is amazing. And before that, we heard from Leah Flanagan from her album, I think it's 2011, Nirvana Nights, and um, she works out of Darwin. And Nirvana Nights, I think, was the name of a pub or a club that she used oh. to sing in in Darwin. And ever since I've heard this album, because it was, you know, sometimes there's albums that you play a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, this was one for me. Mm. Like every single song on it, I just loved. Mm. And uh, so I just thought, I have to get to Nirvana Nights. I do love it when you bring that one in. It's yeah. always, yeah. It's always, she, I mean, she's also very versatile, her voice. You know, she she has a huge range of music beyond the, the music on this album. But uh, I still have not got myself to Darwin I have not been to Darwin, so it's something that I just must do. Yeah, you yeah. seek out Nirvana Nights. Yeah, I'm going to go into Nirvana. I hope it's still, I mean, I, you know, it's the kind of club that might not even exist anymore. And it's and in fact, the final song on the album is called Nirvana Nights, and it's about closing time. But uh, I've never played it on breakfast because... <laughs> <laughs> closing time, Monday yeah, morning. Yeah, Monday morning because it, it also talks about, you know, being kicked out of the pub and everything closes and into the yeah. tropical night and somehow it just um, doesn't fit with Monday <laughs> breakfast. But maybe I should just be a bit more versatile. <laughs> we can, I mean, for some people, they probably are just getting home. Yeah, and it might be some flashbacks from the weekend. And it could, could Take it? people back. Yeah, I mean, and we started, of course, with a huge flashback, Sunshine of Your Love by The Cream. And I was thinking, uh, I expect a few people would have had some flashbacks from <laughs> 1968 or I, mean, I, can't, I can't remember exactly the year it came out. But, um, yeah, certainly mm. been, been, would have been flashbacks then. Absolutely. So yeah. what did we have on the show? Well, I mean, just so busy this morning. Yeah. So we'll go way back. We had Philip Allman, who was um, talking about uh, the inadequacy of prayer as a way of responding to the trout, <laughs> taking a, you know, talking about uh, Scott Morrison there. Susan Hutchinson, wasn't that interesting on Myanmar and the little country, the Gambia, mm. taking them to the International Court of Justice. That'll be really something to watch, and I hope our listeners get on to that. Uh, Peter Miller on the revolving door, ex-parliamentarians joining forces with gambling and um, alcohol industries. And Nicola Parks, how exciting to hear all about Malawi. Mm. And it was great to have Nicola in the studio. It wasn't. It? Absolutely. Yeah, it was so good to have her here. Yeah. And I think that's it. That's, that's all wrap. we've got time for today. Women on the line next. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. Thanks for listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR.